So Acts chapter 10, and we will begin by reading verses 1 through 23 this morning. So Acts chapter 10, the word of God reads as follows. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for, uh, and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius had, excuse me, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let uh, down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never, never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision, which he had seen, meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to, the, to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. This is the word of the Lord to us today. Lord, thank you for your word. And as we have read it and, and as we will study it now, would you just help us, Lord, to open our hearts and our minds to receive from you all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we enter into Acts chapter 10, we're now at roughly 10 years after the cross. And here we come upon a story where Peter has been summoned by the Lord. Remember at the end of the last chapter, chapter 9, the Lord had brought him down to Simon the Tanner's house. He had taken him down to Caesarea to heal a lady who was lame, uh, who had died rather, uh, and to, to resuscitate her from death. Uh, her name was uh, Tabitha or Dorcas. Her name meant gazelle or graceful one. And as Peter had done that and he was there in that area, uh, he ended up at Simon the Tanner's house. And as he had been working there, just being available to the Lord, it says uh, in verse 42, after he had healed uh, the lady, it says, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed on the Lord. And so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. So here Peter is 
in this place. Simon is a tanner. It would seem that Simon is a Jewish man, although he was a tanner, which was something that was forbidden, working with hides and animals and animal skins. So he was sort of in a perpetual state of uncleanness. So we can see now God is sort of inching Peter along his journey and taking him into different realms that he's unfamiliar with or into areas and ways that he would prefer not to deal with as a kosher Jewish man. As we come into this, you know, so far in the book of Acts, we uh, have been looking at the work of the Spirit, the moving of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. And just to remind you, a Spirit-filled Christian is a condition, it's a state of being, it's not a title. It's a condition, a state of being. And as I read through this chapter and studied it in preparation for today, by my count, 15 times in this chapter, there is a reference to God speaking, leading, or moving in the lives of people. 15 times. God speaking, leading, moving in the lives of people. Some of them are retells of the story as we go through it, but nonetheless, the Holy Spirit saw fit to put these things in the Bible for us, to speak to us, to remind us, to emphasize these things. The emphasis is on the leading and the working of the Spirit of God. Now, something we need to do in this story and as we read the Scriptures is, especially when we're reading these narratives, these retelling of stories, and the book of Acts is, in a sense, a book of history for the New Testament— We need to be able to look at the characters and what's happening and sort of inject ourselves into the story and walk the path and and come alongside these people and try to get inside their skin and in their head and think about what was going on in their situation. We're told in verse 1 that there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. We're told that he was a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. So for A centurion, and we've heard of other centurions throughout the New Testament, a centurion was a a very honored and trusted soldier. He was a man over a hundred, a band of a hundred, that's the term century, centurion. And he uh, was there in that area of Caesarea, so certainly he was one who had been stationed there to be over that region. And we're told in verse 2 that he was a devout man and one who feared God. Now, we need to understand this would have been very unusual for a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, to be someone who knew God. Most of the Roman soldiers were complete heathen pagans. They were about as far away from God as you could get because in Rome, the rule of Rome was about as immoral as you could get. They sort of defined and set in in course uh, immorality for that period of time. So that this man was a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household was, in a sense, somewhat of a miracle. And so we start the chapter with God zooming in on the the story of this man and his household. And it says, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. So we're about to see how the Lord spoke to him through this angel that he sent to him. So some things that we can observe as we get into the story this morning about the life of Cornelius. First of all, he was a devout man. That means he was very committed to the Lord. Now, as we get into the the passage this morning and study this, I'm going to warn you, this is your opportunity to leave, this story is going to mess with us. It's going to really get to the heart of where we live As we look at this, a devout man, he was one who was devoted to God. He feared God with all of his household. So as we make that observation, let's let's make an application. Let's ask a question. Where do we stand in relation to our devotion to God? Do we fear God? Does our household fear God? Is that the way we're leading our households, both a husband and wife, father and mother? It says he gave alms generously, so that means he was giving financially to the work of the Lord. And it says he gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed to God always. 
So this was a man who was fulfilling the scripture listed for us in 1 Thessalonians 5, where it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So here's this man, devout, fearing God, giving generously, praying consistently. Jesus said in Luke 18, then he, uh, rather Luke tells us about Jesus, then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. In Romans chapter 12, verse 12, it says, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints. Is this where we are in our prayer life, in our devotion to God? In fact, as we go through this morning, we're going to come back to this a few times because it keeps coming up in the story. So let's get our hearts and our minds into that, that mindset. You know, where are we in our walk with God? In Ephesians chapter 6, it says in verse 18, And praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So again, an encouragement to be in prayer. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. And then finally, Peter said toward the end of the first century, but the end of all things is at hand, 1 Peter 4, 7. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So this exhortation to pray, to be devoted to God. So here in verse 3, we get our first example of God speaking to someone in this chapter. God speaks to Cornelius in verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he, that is Cornelius, clearly saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now, sometimes I think that we may not pray because we feel unworthy, because we think God doesn't hear, or maybe we're not seeing answers to our prayers, at least the way we want to see them. But notice he said here to this man, your prayers and your alms have come up as a memorial before God. You may remember the man Daniel back in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9, verse 20, Daniel said, I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. And yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly reached me about the time of the evening offering, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Daniel had been praying, and God dispatched an angel to him to encourage him and to give him understanding. And he says, the Lord has heard your prayer, just as this angel spoke to Cornelius. Is prayer important to God? Does he listen? Well, in Revelation chapter 5, as we're now in the time of the tribulation, it says, uh, well, Revelation 5, excuse me, is the time just before the tribulation where the church is in heaven worshiping. And it says, now, when he had taken the scroll, that is uh, Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So you see, even there in heaven, God has the prayers of the saints in a bowl before his throne. So prayer is important to God. Prayer should be important to us. And know this, God does hear our prayer. He listens. 
Our prayers come before him. Two more times in the book of Revelation, we are told about it in Revelation 8.3. It says uh, that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar. So again, the prayers are there before God. And in Revelation 8.4, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. So our prayers go before the throne of God. God hears, he sees, he cares. So let me offer that this morning as encouragement to you as well as exhortation to seek the Lord in prayer, to pray to him. Now you may say, well, what does that look like? Do I have to go sit in a dark closet by myself and pray? Because if I do that, I'm going to fall asleep. Well, sometimes you need to do that. And if you can do that, if you're the kind of person who can do that, great. A lot of us pray while we drive. At least I found when I'm driving, other people are praying for my driving. So at least I cause people to pray. That's a good thing, I guess. But you see, of course, we can pray anywhere at any time, can't we? But I think the point here is that we should be praying. There should be times set aside in our lives where we are seeking God. So it says here in verse 5, as the angel is speaking to him, Now send men to Joppa. And send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea, and he will tell you what you must do. You know, so often when the Lord may speak or direct like he did in the life of Abraham, he just said, hey, get out from among your people and go to a place that I will show you. Not very specific, but very directional. Once you start moving, Abraham, I I will guide you. I will lead you here in this situation. We have the Lord speaking in a very specific way. He gives him a name and an address. I want you to send men, and I don't want you to go. I want you to send men to go down uh, to Simon a Tanner, whose house is by the sea, and he will tell you what, what you must do. You see, there's about 30 miles between these two cities. It was always regarded that about 20 miles traveling on foot was roughly a day's journey. So you're looking at a day and a half journey to get men down and then, you know, get people back. And so in verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. So now, first of all, remember I talked about sort of putting yourself in the story. Put yourself in the shoes of Cornelius. You're a devout person, you're seeking the Lord, you're giving, you're a faithful person, and and this angel appears to you and gives you this instruction from God. I don't know about you, but I would be pretty shaken if an angel appeared to me, and I would certainly give heed to his words. And now he comes to his servants, now put yourself in the the place of these two servants and this devout soldier, as he comes and he says, hey, fellas, come here. I was just in the other room praying. This angel appeared to me, and uh, here's the story. You need to to go down to Simon the Tanner's house by the sea, down at Joppa, uh, and and go, go find this guy and bring him here. The Lord says he has something to say to us. Yes, sir, boss. You heard from an angel, right? Is that what you just said? Are you sure you didn't fall asleep? It wasn't a crazy dream? I mean, an angel really appeared to you and spoke to you? Yes. And so when he had spoken all these things to these men, it says they, they went away, he sent them. And the next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. So now we have scene one, we have the Lord speaking and moving in the life of Cornelius and in his servants, so now his servants are affected. He's probably telling his household about this as well. And so while God had been speaking to Cornelius and preparing his heart and telling him this man Peter is going to come and speak to him, he's also over here working on the other end of the situation in the life of Peter. So Peter is up on the housetop to pray, up on the the patio, so to speak, the Mediterranean culture. Often the roof of their house would be flat, and that would be what we would call our patio or, or our deck. So he was up there about the sixth hour, which means noon. 
And he became very hungry and wanted to eat. And, but while they made ready, they're preparing lunch, says he fell into a trance. So he didn't fall asleep, but he was just kind of in this state where God was, uh, could speak to him. And it says, and he saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him um, and let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And as we understand the vision here, there were things in this sheet that were both kosher and non-kosher. And so as this sheet is let down from heaven... It says in verse 13, and a voice came to him. And notice in our Bibles, it's in red letters, and we find out later that, of course, this was Jesus speaking to him. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. I mean, he was hungry, right? It was a, a good way for the Lord to sort of speak to Peter. He was hungry at that moment. But Peter, of course, looked at the contents <coughs> of what was in that sheet, and his word was not so lord for i have never eaten anything uncommon excuse me common or unclean now i'd just like to point out that this is not a good way to answer the lord when the lord speaks to you when he speaks to us as we're reading his word or however he might speak to us to hear from god and say, not so, Lord, is contrary. If he's your Lord, then you really have no right to say to him, not so. I'm not going to do it. In fact, the Greek is much more emphatic. It says, no way, no how. I am not, capital N, capital O, capital T, I am not going to do that. And a voice, verse 15, spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common or unclean. And this was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, we can be a little rough on Peter that it took three times for the Lord to speak to him. But I assure you, many of us would be in that same camp, right? In fact, hasn't it probably been often in our lives that God has had to say something to us in his word many times. I can't even tell you the number of times where maybe I've felt that God was ministering to me about something and I didn't do anything about it. And then later I'm listening to something on the radio or listening to a message on my phone or meeting in a men's Bible study with the guys and all of a sudden somebody brings it up. Almost the exact words that I need to hear. And I said, wait, whoa, wait a minute. I, that's, Lord, is that you? And then a few minutes later, somebody else is speaking, and they bring up something very similar. They say almost the same words. Or that we go to prayer, and we're praying for one another. And as one, one person prays as they're praying, it's like they prayed the exact thing that I, that I needed to be praying. And God does these things. And so Peter needed to hear it three times. He needed to have this vision emphasized to him by the Lord. There are other times that there were sort of three Pete's for Peter. You may remember when Jesus told him that he would deny him three times, also not a good thing. On the night before he was crucified, he, he said, Peter, you're, you're going to deny me three times. And he says, not so, Lord. There, I'm not going to do that. I won't deny you. Even if all of these other men here, the other boys, if they deny you, I won't. And he said, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. You may remember after the, the, after the denial, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, John chapter 21. Jesus and Peter met on the beach on the shore of Galilee. And there three times Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And remember, there was a play on words there. The first two times, Jesus said to him, agape, do you love me? And then in that third time, uh, Simon uh, said to him, you know, Lord, you know I love you. But Simon said to him uh, that word for brotherly love, phileo. 
So three times Jesus had to speak to Peter often, just as he does with us. And while Peter wondered, verse 17, within himself, what this vision had meant, which he had seen, behold, the men who had uh, been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry at Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. So while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit spoke to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So now these men arrive from Cornelius' house. They are clearly Gentiles. And as they come to the house and they knock on the door, this Jewish residence with this Jewish man, Peter, the Spirit speaks to him and says, Go down and go with them, doubting nothing. And let me remind us this morning that doubt and faith are opposites. They don't go together. And when it comes to God's word, there should be no doubt in our lives. You see, when we read this word, and when God speaks to us from his word, he desires, he wants us to respond in faith. Not doubt. You see, doubt equals unbelief, doesn't it? Doubt means I don't believe what God says. I don't believe his word. I don't believe he'll provide for me or I don't believe he'll lead me or I don't believe God has my best interest in mind. You may remember as Jesus was ministering, he said that he couldn't uh, work in certain situations because of what? Unbelief or doubt. And you see, doubt or unbelief quenches the spirit. It grieves the spirit. So by now in his life, Peter is learning to hear. He's learning to discern the voice of the spirit. And this is a very real truth and principle for us as well, that we need to learn to hear and discern his voice speaking to us. Now, I believe the primary way that God speaks to us is through his word. Does God speak to us through other means? I believe he does, but I believe those are the secondary means. The primary means is through his word. In fact, in John chapter 10, Jesus said these words, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. Sorry, lost my place. And he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him and they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, referring to Gentiles, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. And then he finished by saying, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The voice of God, the voice of Jesus. You see, it's important that we learn the sound of his voice, just like we do in our houses, with our spouses and our children. It's always amazed me how women can hear a baby crying across the room and know that it's theirs. They know the voice. You might say, well, how do I know if I'm hearing from God? Well, if you're reading his word, then you will hear from him. You will learn to hear his voice. I think of the Old Testament story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Then the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Uh, And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke uh, the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after a fire, the fire, a still small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? You see, Elijah was looking for the voice of the Lord, but he was also hiding from the Lord. He was discouraged. He was defeated. 
And all of these things happen, these distractions, the wind, the rain, the fire, all of these things happen as a distraction to him. And it says the Lord was not in those things. And isn't that the way we are? You see, one thing we lack greatly in our society today is time alone. Time to just shut it all off. Turn your phone off, flip it over, turn it off. Well, what if somebody needs to reach me? They, they can reach you later. Put it on silent. Put it under the couch. Listen. Read God's word. Let him speak to you. The word tells us later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that when the Lord is coming back for his church, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. I hope we're listening for that. In Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John says, He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, and then Jesus spoke to him, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And as Jesus spoke to him, he, he knew it was Jesus speaking. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So in that moment, as Jesus spoke to him, he revealed something, something to him very significant. When it says the seven golden lampstands, we know that he's giving him a picture that Jesus living in and moving through his church would be as a lampstand, the presence of the Lord, the light of the Lord in the church. We come later in Revelation 3, and of course, Revelation 2 and 3 are the seven letters to the seven churches. This is the Lord Jesus himself speaking not only to those seven churches, but to us today. In Revelation 3, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Sometimes we use that verse in the context of salvation. It's really not meant to be used that way. This is the Lord himself standing on the outside of his church, knocking on the door, trying to get back in. Why? Because his people have stopped hearing his voice. And as he finishes every letter, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Folks, we need to be listening for the voice of the Lord. Cornelius heard it. Peter heard it. The servants have been told. Then Peter, verse 21, went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. That had to rock Peter's world. Why? Because he was a Jew. And there were Gentiles inviting him to their house. So you see, God is breaking down these walls. He's addressing issues. What are those issues? Well, in Simon Peter's life, being a Jew, he had the issue of we might call religious superiority, religious prejudice, so to speak, against the, the Gentiles. And God was working in that. The, the vision from heaven was not just about food. It's how Peter was looking at people. And so God is working in his life. And as they say, he, uh, Cornelius, this Gentile, heard from God, an angel appeared to him. He was divinely instructed to summon you to his house to hear words from you. Then he, that is Peter, invited them in and lodged them, a second big step, to invite these unclean Gentiles into this holy house. And on the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. We'll discover later that there was great wisdom in inviting those brothers to come along because they will become witnesses to the things that God does as they get up to Cornelius's house. And the following day they entered Caesarea, and now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. 
You see, they were waiting in anticipation, weren't they? They were, they were like, when's Peter going to get here? I mean, the Lord spoke to us. The Lord spoke and he said, when Peter comes, he's going to tell us things we need to hear. He's going to bring us a word from the Lord. He's going to bring us a Bible study. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I myself am also a man. And of course, just a word of caution here, we always have to be cautious about elevating people to places that they should not be. Pastors, spiritual leaders, we look to God. People fail, people sin, people fall. And it's a horrible thing when a spiritual leader falls and they, they bring damage to the name of Christ. So we shouldn't, in an unholy or uh, unwise way, elevate people. We looked to God, and as he talked with him, verse 27, he went in and found many who had come together. And I imagine Peter was quite surprised as he walked in. What is, what is this? And then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go into, excuse me, go to a, a one of another nation. Listen to what he says here. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. <coughs> Peter is learning. God has spoken to him. God showed him that vision three times. He had time up on the roof <clears throat> to consider it. He's had now three or so days to think about these things. And Peter was able to speak from experience something that God had shown him. Something that's so important for us. For you see... When we meet other people, whether they be believer or unbeliever, and we want to have something of God to share with them, it needs to be something that we've experienced, that we've read, that we've heard, that we've learned. All of us should be able to speak of what God is showing us. And so let me ask you the question this morning, what is God showing you? Can you answer that question? How is he speaking to you in your life? You see, if we have nothing to say to this question, then what is happening in our relationship with Jesus? The Lord wants us to be able to speak like Peter is speaking here, but God has shown me, and then what has God shown you? What is he teaching you? Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for, and I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? And I understand this because I, you, know, you want to know, I just specifically, why did you call me here? I want to know why, why are all these people here in this room? Why are you guys waiting for me? What's the, what's the deal? And so Cornelius now recounts to Peter his own story of how God spoke to him. So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour. So there's an element of uh, the, the devoutness of Cornelius that he was also a man who fasted as he prayed and as he sought the Lord. Four days ago, I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea, and when he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. In other words, we are all here waiting in anticipation of what God is going to speak to us, Peter, through you. What an amazing thing. Now, as we've been going through the book of Acts, I've used the term several times, essential church. And I think essential church, a part of essential church, is exactly what's happening here. It's when pe people come together, when they came together, when we come together. It's to hear from the Lord. And so when we come together, when we come to church, when we go to a Bible study, when we go to a prayer meeting... Is our attitude one of anticipation and expectation? 
You see, if we come to our time with God, whether it be a devotional time or we come to church, but we have no expectations. Now, the expectation is not specifically what am I going to hear, but that I'm going to hear. And you know, if you've ever sat and read the Bible devotionally or, or, or even studied it, as you, as you read it and you go Old Testament to New or whatever, God speaks, he ministers to you. And it's almost never the same thing. I mean, he's speaking to us about everything. He's speaking to us about our values, about our character, about who he is. And helping us form an, an ideology, a theology, a philosophy about life and about God that filters and controls our view of the world. You see, when it comes to things like, you know, politics and whatever, it doesn't, forget the labels. What does God's word say? Because how we vote and how we see the things happening in the world, the lens through which we see those things, it has to come from God's word. So this anticipation, this expectation that God is going to speak, this is important. Now, as I think about this, this speaks to me about priorities. What are our priorities on Sundays? Setting aside time to come to the Lord. Remember, all the way back in Acts chapter 2. The early church met, and we just talked about it in our announcements, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, coming together for the apostles' doctrine, for the breaking of bread, for prayer, for fellowship. See, these are, these are the reasons, these are kind of the four pillars for why the church should meet. And we need to come together. We, make it, we need to make it a priority to come and to meet. And, and what I've seen for years, and I've talked to other pastors about this for years, a disturbing trend we've seen in the church, capital C, and it's, it's across the church, at least in America, there seem, we seem to be in a place where anything that comes up on our calendar, whatever it might be, is more important than being in God's house on Sunday. Now, hear me out. Don't, I'm, I'm not preaching legalism to you. I'm, I'm talking about priorities. And the same thing can be said about our devotional life, about going to Bible studies, about seeking fellowship with other believers. You see, it's a matter of what takes precedence over the things of God. When I hope you see that there should be nothing that takes precedence over the things of God in our lives. Does it mean we can't miss church? No, that's not what we're saying. We're talking about our attitude and coming before God doing the things that God has said in his word we should do. The church should meet together. The church should gather. And when we gather, we hear from the Lord. We hear from his word. We worship him. We realign ourselves with who he is, with his priorities. We let God work in our lives just like these people who were gathered in Cornelius' house with anticipation, wanting to hear, eagerly waiting to hear the word of God. So the question for you this morning that only you can answer before God is what's most important to you? And if you say, I'm not sure, then take a look at your own life because your actions reveal what your priorities are. Now, don't do these things because I or another pastor said it to you because in the end, we all have to stand before God. It has to be your priorities. If you're doing it because someone else told you to do it, well, there's always going to be this little <clears throat> knit, this little burn or saddle, isn't there? But if we own it, if it's our priority before God, then it's a significant thing. Don't let misguided priorities be a lame excuse for not seeking God or for listening to his voice. So where is God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God in your priorities? Would you say it's first? Would you say, man, my relationship with God, number one? Or would you say, number two? Or number three? What does it look like in your life? How do you work this out? See, these are things you need to take before the Lord. And you need to wrestle with Him on. 
So God spoke to Cornelius and the Gentiles through Peter. Then Peter, verse 34, opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Now here is what happened every morning pretty much in the life of a Jewish person. It was common for a Jewish man to begin the day with a prayer thanking God that he was not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And a basic part of the Jewish religion in the days of the New Testament was an oath that promised that one would never help a Gentile under any circumstances, such as giving directions if they were asked, but it went as far as even refusing to help a Gentile woman at the time of her greatest need when she was giving birth, because the result would only be to bring another Gentile into the world. And their view of Gentiles was that they were fodder for the flames of hell. Look how far God has brought Peter. Look at how God has been working in Peter's life to break down those laws in his life, those ordinances, to change his view, those things that were not of God. You see, God, when he built the temple, the outer court of the temple was the court of the Gentiles, the court of the nations. And God always had it in his plan that the Gentiles would come to him. They they would come and, and worship at the temple. But the Jews had somehow misguided that over the years, and when they wrote their own version of the law, the Mishnah and the, um, the Talmud, they, not the Talmud, the Mishnah and the, just two, I can't think of the other thing after Mishnah, but they had written their own laws, and these were the things that Jesus had spoken against and said, you have laid your laws, the laws of man, upon the hearts of people. And so this is where Peter was. And Peter's now saying, this is a revelation. This is an aha moment. Peter's probably saying out loud with his words for the first time, something he had only come to recently in his heart. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. What an amazing thing. God wants to save everybody. God loves everybody. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So he's preaching the gospel now. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism, which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. The apostles and the disciples bearing witness to the things of Jesus. Verse 40, and him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. There he is with the resurrection, right? The central point of the gospel, the resurrection, And he showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Now we're seeing the significance in the life of Peter and the apostles that those 40 days after the resurrection made as Jesus went in and out and spent time with them. And he commanded us to preach to the people. And to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Wait a minute. He's ordained by God to judge the living and the dead? Jesus? Yes. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So imagine them sitting there in anticipation, waiting for the word of God, and these words are falling from the lips of Peter. And they are sitting there with eyes wide open, probably with tears in their eyes and hearts full, and they are just rejoicing in the word of God. And now God speaks to everyone through the Holy Spirit, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words. I mean, this... Peter's order of service wasn't exactly mapped out the way it's about to happen. While Peter was still speaking, he's in the middle of his sermon. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Now observe the links that God went to in order to get people in a place to accomplish what he was wanting to accomplish. 
Think about it. Back it up a few days. Cornelius is in his house praying. Sends an angel to speak to him. Peter's on a rooftop 30 miles south. He's up there hungry, waiting on lunch. God speaks to him. All these things that God has done to make this moment happen. God cares about people, doesn't he? He cares about getting his word to people. Listen, if you're praying for someone this morning who doesn't know the Lord, or someone maybe who you hope or you think maybe used to know the Lord, but you're, you're praying that, that God would bring them back or save them or whatever the case may be, listen, God knows their address. He knows where they are, what they're doing at any given moment in time. And he did all these things for this moment when he could reach out and bless this little group of Gentile people who now are Gentile believers by falling upon them with the Holy Spirit at this exact moment. Now, if there was ever a model or a verse to claim, I would want to claim this verse. That while we are in service and worshiping the Lord and the word is being spoken, that the Spirit would just open our hearts and fall upon us. And those of the circumcision, verse 45, who believed, now these are the guys who came along with him, they were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Now they were sitting there watching this thing happen, going, well, we can't say it didn't happen. It obviously happened right before our eyes. And so God did this thing. He was not only wanting to teach Peter to transform Peter's understanding, but also these other guys. Later, they're going to go to Jerusalem and retell this whole story. We'll get to this in a couple of chapters. And as they do this, they're going to have to stand there and Peter's going to go say, guys, now you were there, right? Did this happen? Yes or no? Are you my witnesses? You got my back or not? And these guys are going to be there saying, yes, of course, this is what happened. Now, some has referred to this as being the Gentile Pentecost, the time when the Spirit begins to fall upon the Gentiles. And remember what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem. That's cool. We're happy with that. That's our little comfort circle. We know Jerusalem. In all Judea and Samaria, Judea is okay, Samaria not so much, and to the end of the earth. As far as they're concerned, where they were is the beginning of the edges of the end of the earth. And look at what God is doing. God begins to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to do it in the exact same way he did it on the day of Pentecost with Jerusalem, with the Jews. You see, traditions are strong, aren't they? Traditions are strong. Sometimes we've been brought up in homes or we've been exposed to traditions and we don't want to let them go. But listen, when you evaluate them in the light of Scripture, in the light of what the Bible has to say, are those traditions godly? Are they biblical? God wanted to change all of this in Peter's mind and Peter's understanding. And he did it. And look at the links that God went to in order to get him to understand the, the way he wanted him to understand. He wanted to conform Peter's understanding to the scriptures. He wanted Peter to see that he was doing a fresh work, that he was pouring new wine into new wineskins. And it required Peter changing. Now there's a dreaded word, isn't it? Change. You mean I have to change? Yes, you have to change. You must change. God did not save you to leave you where you were. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. So not only does, do we need to change in the sense of we need to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, but now that we've become believers, now that we've, we've believed, everything has to change. Our views have to change. Our heart has to change. Our actions have to change. The way we think about things has to change. We might need to let some things die that were once precious to us. Paul even said this in Philippians, this one thing I do, leaving behind those old things, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead. 
what lengths does God need to go to in order to get your attention and my attention or to address issues in our lives? Does he have to take us to a mountaintop somewhere and sit us down and then there speak to us and appear to us? Does it take something dramatic to get my attention or to get yours? Does God have to speak to us in a dream? What does it take for God to get our attention? And it says, verse 46, where they heard them speak with tongues and to magnify God, and they magnified God. And then Peter answered and said, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit the same as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay a few days. Now, see, after this point, you think by now Peter's got it, right? But later, Paul's going to address an issue where Peter was still kind of confused and he, would, he was somewhere uh, fellowshipping with some Gentiles and then some brothers from Jerusalem came in and as soon as they came in, he kind of tidied himself up, went outside and said, <clears throat> yeah, I, was not, I was not with Gentiles. And then Peter said, I had to call him out to his face. I had to, I had to correct him publicly before the brothers and say, you're a hypocrite, Peter. God showed you all this stuff, and yet here you are still confused. You're still waffling about it. And here's the, the good thing about that. It encourages us because we, you know, we're still in process. We're still learning and all of that. But there's so much in this story, isn't there, about what God had to do to get a man to do what he wanted him to do, to get him to a place where he wanted him to be. Priorities our relationship with God, prayers, seeking the Lord, how we view people, how we view things, how we view situations, allowing the word of God to direct us, hearing the voice of our master. These things are so important, aren't they? They're all here in this chapter. It's important for us to hear these things and to receive them and to believe them. And allow the word of God to allow the Holy Spirit to change us. Now, what if God spoke to you and told you to sell your house and move somewhere? We hate change. You might want to listen to the Lord. Don't listen to me. Listen to the Lord. Read his word. Seek his face. Let him speak to you. Let him guide your life. There is no better place to be than in the center of God's will. I remember, and I'll close with this, when our kids were teenagers and they were graduating high school and, and all that, trying to figure out what they wanted to do. My son had tried college and things didn't work out for, for him and he just you know, couldn't figure out what he wanted to do. And finally he just decided, he called me up one day and uh, I... So here's the interesting thing, right? I had this little little Bible, more of like a travel Bible that I carried, and we were somewhere, I think we we're on vacation, and he was leaving, and I knew he had been struggling with the Lord, wrestling with the Lord and in so many ways, and I, and I took that Bible out, and uh, I said, look, I want you to have this, and he's like, well, I'm not going to read it, and I'm like, well, I want you to take it anyway. Take this Bible and read it. Just take it. Even if you don't read it, take it. Just take it, and he did. Well, in his typical fashion, in his rebellious, you know, dad said it, so I'm not going to listen to it. He later got alone. He began reading the word, and God spoke to him. Ultimately, the Lord led him to join the Marine Corps. Now, when he was going into the Marine Corps, our neighbors, who were also believers, where we were living at the time, you know, we were talking about it, just telling them what God was doing in his life and how, you know, we had felt along with him because he had called us and brought us into this process and we prayed together with him and all of that and we felt like the Lord was leading him. Yeah, we agree. The Lord's leading him to go into the Marine Corps. And this family, again, who are believers and they're wonderful people and we know them, they, they love the Lord. They, they could not understand how we could possibly go along with the decision to allow our son to be put in harm's way. I mean, he's going he's gonna to go to Afghanistan. What if he goes to Vietnam? I mean, you know, and there are all these, you know, what are you going to do? And, you know, why would you do this? And we're like, listen, we prayed. We know the Lord has said this was his will for him. We're, we're, it's his decision, but we're coming alongside him. And even if that decision 
is something that I wouldn't choose as a parent because I'm his father and I love him and I don't want him to be in harm's way and I don't want him to get killed. And listen, the best place for him to be, the safest place for him to be is in the center of God's will. And if that means it's on a battlefield in Afghanistan, then praise God, can God not take care of that situation? And he did. And a couple of years later, our daughter wanted to go uh, overseas and do missions work. And they were like, well, why would you let your daughter do that? She's, she went on the missions trip to Africa for two weeks. And then she went to Hungary and she did these things. And they were, they were looking at the situation of the same family, but there were others as well saying, why would you let your kids do that? Are you going to let her get on a plane and go halfway around the world and do these things? And we're like, yes. They're like, why? They, I know that what they wanted to say, which is what a lot of us want to say, which is, you're an idiot. <laughs> why would you let your kids do that? Because we prayed. Because God had spoken to her and spoken to us about doing that. And yeah, maybe it didn't make sense to our logic. You know, we all want our kids to be close. We want them to live within five miles and have our grandbabies and do all that. But if that's not what God wants, why should we fight against God? Now, this is in the lives of our family and our kids. What about in our own lives? We have to be open to what God wants to do. Amen? Open your heart to the things of the Spirit. Open your heart to the things of the Word of God. Let God speak to you. Let Him lead him, you. Let Him guide you. And if He wants to make some changes in your life, you bloody well better let Him. Because if you're not, you're going to be the most miserable person on the face of the earth, living out of the will of God as opposed to in the will of God. Lord, we love you this morning. We bless you. Lord, thank you for the word that you've spoken to us. And may we receive it and meditate on it and think on these things. In Jesus' name, amen.